Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, why did the Spanish Armada fail and what can we learn from studying the wreckage? Botany and gardening in the 17th and 18th centuries and nursing and midwifery in Ireland in the years before independence. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about the early history of Dublin Castle and how it became a symbol of repression. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the Spanish Armada. In July 1588, the Spanish Armada sailed from Corona to conquer England. Three weeks later, an English fireship attack in the Channel and then a fierce naval battle foiled the planned invasion. Many myths still surround these events. The genius of Sir Francis Drake is exalted, while Spain's efforts are belittled. But what really happened during that fateful encounter? Well, a new book brings together archives from around the world, as well as vital new evidence from Armada shipwrecks off the coasts of Ireland and Scotland. The book is called Armada, the Spanish Enterprise and England's Deliverance in 1588. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press. The authors are Colin Martin and Geoffrey Parker. And Colin, you're very welcome to the show tonight. I'm very glad to be here. It was the archaeological evidence which kicked it all off in the late 1960s when um, two major Armada shipwrecks were found. One was the Girona off the coast of Antrim and the the other was the Santa Maria de de la Rosa um, off the uh, southwest tip of Ireland uh, off the Dingle Peninsula. Um, The real point that puzzled us. And this was surprising because um, the Spaniards were supposed to have run out of of cannonballs. And that was one of the reasons of the things that obviously hadn't been fired at the English. So that started off some questions. And those questions were in part answered uh, by my colleague, Geoffrey Parker, who in the archives of Spain, found these amazing documents, which were uh, indicative of Spain's bureaucracy at the time, that if you issued a cannonball to a ship uh, 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 to go off to battle with, and it came back and it didn't have that cannonball still, it had to account for it. So the clerks had to make meticulous records of every cannonball that had been fired on on which date, uh, and so on and so forth. So when they got back to Spain, they could account for the missing ones. Well, uh, a number of the Spanish ships that Geoffrey found the the very detailed archival records for showed that some of them came back with almost all the cannonballs that they'd been issued with. So there was a question. And that question, uh, along with other evidence from the wrecks, uh, began to pose questions which the documentary historians led by Geoffrey Parker, um, uh, went back into the archives and started 
pulling out much more evidence that hadn't been published or made use of before. And by combining this new evidence with the new evidence that was coming out of the shipwrecks, we had the sources to retell the story of the Armada from a very much more direct perspective. We were almost literally going on board the ships and asking the people who were there what what actually happened. Yeah, I think I think if you're going off on a war like that, you want to encourage your sailors to fire as many cannonballs as possible and not not put a lot of red tape in their way. Can we can we first discuss <laughs> why Spain was at war with England in 1588? What led the countries to that point? Well, it's quite a long story, and it all really started, I suppose, uh, when Henry VIII. Uh, wanted to get to a large number of wives. Um, And uh, technically, England was uh, uh, still a Catholic country. And uh, quite rightly, the Catholics didn't approve of this sort of behavior. So Henry VIII broke with the Catholic Church. So so Protestant and Catholic became a a sort of, um, you you know, a natural source of of, of disagreement and, and ultimately war. But there were many other reasons, too. Um, Spain was a, a, a strong maritime nation. It, it, by the 16th century, it was spanning the globe uh, and more or less um, without any opposition. But gradually, towards the end of the century, and particularly with people like Francis Drake and Queen Elizabeth, um, England entered the fray of you know, wanting to, wanting to uh, trade with other countries across the globe, and indeed to prey on rich countries like Spain. So that's, that, that caused war as well. Um, and there were other aspects that um, uh, the, the low countries, uh, the Netherlands, uh, they were in revolt against Spain. They had been part of, of the Spanish Empire, uh, but they too were becoming Protestant and they were revolting and England were helping them in their revolt. So um, uh, England and Spain more and more uh, were becoming uh, hostile to one another. Uh, and eventually, Philip II of Spain decided to take the initiative to uh, uh create an enormous fleet whose primary purpose was not to fight a sea battle, but to transport troops and and escort even more troops from the Netherlands in an invasion of England uh, to to topple Queen Elizabeth uh, and make uh, England a, a Spanish Catholic colony in effect. And that kind of does get to the heart of their their big problem that uh, they would have been very effective if they'd been able to land all of these troops and carry out a land invasion. But unfortunately, they were going to first have to fight various battles at sea and they weren't really prepared for that. That's right. Um, uh, the Spanish army was really the best in the world at the time, uh, particularly the ones that were stationed in the Netherlands because they'd been fighting the rebel Dutch for uh, tens of years. And uh, under their commander, the Duke of Parma, who was a very great general, uh, they were really crack troops. Um, and, And so the Armada's job was to escort these crack troops across the uh, English Channel, the, the narrow English Channel, um, and they, the Armada, carried backup troops themselves and also the heavy siege 
artillery uh, that was going to be needed to knock down England's not very modern fortifications uh, in a blitzkrieg attack on London. So that was really the plan. Um, and, and the original idea was that the whole army would be transported on board the Armada and the Armada would be much bigger than it, than it actually was in order to accommodate all these troops. Uh, but that, that was really impossible um, in terms of logistics and, and cost. And Philip II, who was really quite a micromanager, thought he'd take charge and he said, right, um, we'll not um, send a smaller army with the Armada um, and they will escort the larger army under the Duke of Parma from the Netherlands. Trouble was that both the commander of the Netherlands army and the Armada's commander uh, said to the king, look, this really isn't practical. Um, here we are, two very large forces. We've got to coordinate our actions very carefully and closely and communications just weren't up to it. I mean, you'd have to send somebody on a horse or in a boat uh, for days on end, um, you know, just to take a, a message one way. And if you had these two huge forces that had to co cooperate very closely, it just wasn't workable. And the commanders told the king this, but the king had an answer to that. He said, right, you, you, you're, you're, you're quite right to raise these points. These might have caused difficulties, but you forget that this is a, a work of, uh, on behalf of God, and therefore he will make sure that everything goes to plan. So the poor old commanders had to do as they were told, knowing that uh, there was almost certainly going to be a, 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 a real mess up, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I was wondering whether God would come into it. So there was this overconfidence. So do you think the blame lies with Philip II for, as you say, being this compulsive micromanager and yes. not listening to the advice? Did the admirals then on the Spanish side, did they head off fearing that this could all unravel very quickly? Absolutely. And both of them told the king this. But as I say, this argument that the king had uh, by bringing in the almighty, uh, they couldn't really argue against that without being accused of heresy. So they just had to do as they were told. Um, and really, the, 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 the blame for the, 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 the armada failing rests pretty well entirely with Philip II. If he had taken a more sensible attitude, um, it could well have worked. So how much credit then should we give to Francis Drake and the English side? Um, could anyone have been in charge and been able to, to defeat the Armada or did it still depend on English genius? Uh, it, 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 like so many things, there's a bit of truth in both directions. Um, the English sea dogs, men like Drake uh, and Hawkins, uh, were certainly very, very capable and uh, courageous men. Uh, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, was very good because she gave them their hand. She didn't. She wasn't a micromanager, at least not in this particular instance. Um, she uh, gave them, uh, you know, pretty well free freedom to do what they wanted. Uh, it's also important, though, to uh, stress that Drake wasn't the commander of the English. That was Lord Howard of Effingham. Um, and he wasn't a particularly um, experienced admiral, um, but he was a very good man manager. And he um, coordinated his very 
good sailors and fleet uh, in, in, in the best way possible. He was a bit like Eisenhower in World War II. He, he wasn't a great fighting general, but he was an extremely good man at, at strategy and at handling his 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 junior officers um, in a sensible and, and, and sensitive way. Uh, that was Lord Howard's uh, great contribution, allowing Drake and Hawkins uh, to deploy their skills to the full. But really, in the end, uh, the English were very sensible because the Armada um, got almost to the rendezvous with the Duke of Parma. But that was a very, very difficult area of sea, um, uh, very shallow. So the deep draft ships of the Armada couldn't get close to the shore. And the shallow water Dutch of the uh, ships of the rebel Dutch uh, would have absolutely annihilated Palmer's army as they came out in their little landing craft to link up with the Armada. So just at this point of confusion, the English very sensibly sent in fire ships, which uh, caused the anchored Armada to panic uh, briefly. It, it re-established its discipline in its formation, but by that time they'd lost the opportunity of linking up with the army uh, that was due to invade from Flanders. Uh, and finally, uh, the English, having realized that they could um, uh, take on the, the, the Spaniards, much clumsier than they were, the, the ships were much clumsier because they were heavily armed. Uh, they had lots of soldiers on board. Uh, the English were lighter, more maneuverable, and they could uh, dart in and out rake the Spaniards with gunfire uh, without being boarded themselves. So they, uh, in the final battle, uh, the English definitely won on points, but they didn't defeat the Armada in the sense of uh, destroying it or, or completely disrupting it, um, but they left it in the North Sea with the wind blowing in the wrong direction uh, for the Spaniards, and uh, all they could then do was to return to Spain, which they had to um, sail right round the top of the British Isles, out into the Atlantic, and past the, the, the wild coasts of Scotland, Western Scotland and Ireland. And that, that's where the winds of God, as the um, English would have it, uh, the winds of God blew, and so many of the Spanish ships were wrecked on the way home. Yeah, this belief in the Protestant winds uh, saving their cause. And, and of course, in Ireland, we have a special interest in the Armada because of the ships uh, which were wrecked off our coast and some landed. And uh, there's always been a huge interest in the events of this time. That's right. Um, uh, uh, and this is a wonderful historical resource. Um, and the really good thing is that uh, although at the time the first wrecks were found, um, uh, there was no effective legislation to protect them as historical monuments. Uh, just by good fortune, uh, the wrecks were uh, properly treated as heritage assets uh, that had to be sensitively treated, properly looked after, uh, archaeologically investigated, uh, recoveries conserved and put in museums where they would be preserved for all time uh, uh, for the public and for scholars to uh, appreciate and, and, and work from. And that is, is what has happened. Um, now, uh, the 
historic shipwreck legislation in Ireland is probably the best in Europe, but it took the Armada uh, to kick that, that off. It wasn't uh, so in the beginning, um, uh, but uh, all the Armada wrecks so far examined have been in, uh, looked at and, uh, not by treasure hunters, uh, but by archaeologists with strong support from museums. Do you think there was a huge amount of propaganda and myth-making in the story of the Armada on the English side in in the oh, years after? It would have been strange had it been otherwise, because uh, uh, cynics do say that history is, is what's written by the winning side. Um, and that's certainly true of the Armada. Um, and the first sort of real interest happened in the uh, late 19th century uh, with the coming up of the of, of the 300th anniversary in, in 1888. And English historians uh, looked at the English documentation, of which there isn't a great deal, because they were uh, you know, in a state of panic. They weren't planning it for years ahead. They were just uh, sort of taking action uh, when the, the Spanish ships arrived on the horizon. So they haven't left an awful lot of paperwork behind. The Spaniards, on the other hand, had been working for years preparing for the Armada. And in a great bureaucracy like 16th century Spain. This involved the generation of vast quantities of paper, which were all uh, carefully um, uh, archived and put in, 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 into, into store, uh, where they safely remained until the present day. Uh, they're all, all still there. And um, the Spaniards weren't particularly interested, understandably, although uh, some uh, particularly one Spanish naval officer um, uh, recorded quite a lot of material, but English historians were, were, were recording the Spanish material as, as well. But they were selective. They were recording the stuff that, that was interesting to them uh, as, as Englishmen and as late, uh, seven, uh, late 18th century Englishmen at that. Um, you know, England then the heart of a huge world and are dominated by the sea, etc. So they had their own agenda, um, just, you know, the, because of the time they lived in. Uh, so their um, transcriptions of all this material uh, was biased, uh, not just in, in its content, which was fairly, you know, reliable, uh, but in the selection of what they thought was, was relevant. And that continued right through until the, the, the middle of, of the, the 20th century. Um, uh, and I think it would, I, I can claim that it was the, the finding of the wrecks that triggered this new interest by historians in the documents that were there, uh, particularly the Spanish, but other sources as well. Um, and in this new sort of in light of historical inquiry on its own sake, um, the Spanish took a great interest and they have done terrific work in looking at, at, uh, at their own material. And they've published this in, in, in a series of volumes um, which are quite remarkable. So we've had this new material um, uh, from the wrecks and from the archives. And that's what Jeffrey and I have drawn on and uh, tried to integrate 
in, in, in our new study of the whole Armada. And it gives us a fascinating insight into even what life was like on board the different ships and the different command structures on the Spanish ships compared to the English ships. Yeah. And that gives you a great insight as well into why things uh, went uh, wrong. Absolutely. For... I mean, hi- history, not only uh, being the, the uh, version of the winning side, it also tends to um, look at, you know, the kings and the, and, 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 and the, the elite um, uh, uh, and all great affairs of state uh, leaves out, you know, what it was like for ordinary people at the time, and 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 the wrecks particularly give us that that angle in a in a very very direct way. I mean, it really is quite um, moving to find a little religious medallion that you know was worn around the neck of somebody who was actually on the armada and hopefully gave them comfort um, at the time. Uh, as you as you find this thing, you unearth it from the seabed, uh, you really feel you're almost meeting that person. You're sympathizing with them as a fellow human being uh, through the ages and, 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 and all the rest. Well, it's a brilliant new study. It's called Armada, the Spanish Enterprise and England's Deliverance in 1588. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press. The authors are Colin Martin and Geoffrey Parker. And Colin, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll be back with more on Talking History right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. What was botany and gardening like in Ireland in the 17th and 18th centuries? And how much do we know about what went on? Well, a beautifully illustrated new book explores sources for botany and gardening in these centuries. And it investigates the contributions of individuals such as Philip O'Sullivan Bear and Thomas Molyneux, as well as very significant later figures. The book is called Botany and Gardens in Early Modern Ireland. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press. The editors are Charles Nelson, Emer Lawler and Elizabeth Ann Bourne. And I'm delighted to welcome one of the editors, Elizabeth Ann Bourne, to the show tonight. Elizabeth Ann, you're very welcome. It's great to be here. Can we begin, first of all, with the beautiful job which Four Courts have done on the book? Because it is an incredible production. It has beautiful illustrations, it has great articles, but it is a treasure in its own right. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it really is stunning. And I'm very grateful to Four Courts, Martin Fanning, and uh, to Anthony Tierney, this is a really beautiful production. In The Worth, we were very keen to have a highly illustrated volume. We've done a lot of uh, other publications on various themes connected with the library. Uh, but this is the first time that we've had a book that has around 100 I- images in it. And it really has been beautifully produced by Four Courts. So we're very happy with it and we hope that readers will enjoy it. So talk to me about how the book came about then. Uh, was this a bringing together of scholars working in all of these different areas? I know new people went off and discovered new and exciting things as well. Um, yes, I mean, the, the genesis of it was in 2017. Uh, the Worth Library and the Double Naturalist Field Group decided to hold a joint conference in the Worth on the theme of botany uh, in early modern Ireland. Uh, in the Worth, we're very keen on joint initiatives. So this was one part of our outreach. Um, and I'm very grateful to the members of the Dublin Naturalist Field Group who, in, who were involved in that conference uh, and the organisation of it. So PJ Walls, Neva Hanley, and of course, um, Pat Lenehan, who produced images for the book, and Declan Duke, who produced uh, two articles for the book. So the idea was to have a conference on botany in uh, Dr. Stevens Hospital, where the, the Worth is situated. And then the following year, that it was so popular that the botany go- uh, conference, we decided to have one on gardening. 
um, with the idea of having a production, uh, you know, proceedings of both conferences uh, being brought together. And that too was very um, well attended. So we decided to have uh, combined proceedings and this is the, the outcome. It took a few years also getting the, the papers gotten got in the way of the bit, but um, it is the idea was to bring new research on botany and gardens and also to kind of point to uh, research in the past as well. Now we have talked about the wonderful Worth Library on the show before and we've had uh, you know the brilliant uh, uh, former keeper uh, Bill McCormick on the show but remind our listeners about the Worth Library in, in Stevens Hospital because it is one of these I think maybe you know not so well known treasures in our country. Well, the Worth Library is named after Dr. Edward Worth, who was born in 1676 and died in 1733. Um, he was the son of a dean of St. Patrick's, John Worth, educated in Merton College, Oxford, and then went on to Leiden to study medicine. Uh, Edward Worth came back to Dublin, set up a practice in Warburg Street. Um, he was elected president of the Royal College of Physicians on two different occasions, but fined for non-attendance on both, so perhaps not the most clubbable character. Uh, he became a trustee of Dr. Stevens Hospital in 1717. That was just when they were doing the fundraising for the hospital because we have to remember that there were no hospitals in Dublin after the dissolution of the monastery. So this was one of the first projected hospitals in Dublin. He was involved in the fundraising and he decided in 1723 to leave his collection of over 4,400 books books to the hospital uh, for the, the use and behoof of the surgeon, the physician and the chaplain of the hospital for the time being. That's a direct quotation from his will. Um, so the, the books were left to Dr. Stevens Hospital. Because of that very weird stipulation, uh, um, really limiting access, it means now that we have a collection of immense importance for historians of the book as material object. Because Worth as a collector was a wealthy collector. He was a lucky collector. He was buying at a time when you had a stock market crash. You also had the last great um, plague in, in Western Europe, the Marseille Plague of 1720. And that meant that a lot of other collections were coming on the market. So he was gathering up choice items from those collections and then putting them away um, in the, in this library in, in Dr. Stevens Hospital. He was also getting a lot of books rebound. So what you have is a collection that is very much a European collection. We know that from the auction catalogues, the sales catalogues that he left, that he was buying not just from Dublin bookshops, but London, Amsterdam, The Hague. So it's very much a European collection and therefore reflects European binding history. And because of the history of the collection, those bindings are in an incredible state of, of preservation. He was also getting a lot of books rebound in Dublin. And therefore, we have the, the Worth Bindery, which is a very fine binding style in the 1720s, 1730s. So it's really a jewel of a collection in its last front of bookcases, which date from the 1730s because he left money in his will. Uh, so they're all in inbuilt um, cases. And... When you come into the Worth, you're really entering an early 18th century library where very little has changed. So it's a, it's a unique opportunity to see a wonderful library with fantastic collections in the middle of Dublin. And we're very keen for more people to come in and visit us and also to, to look at our online uh, exhibitions as well. And as you say, a jewel of a collection and a jewel of a collection when it comes to botany and gardening then as well, because your own article explores uh, what we can learn about uh, botany and gardening in this period. Yes, botany was very important to him from a medicinal perspective. And you can see that in his collections of botany because there's a very strong contingent of herbals. He has a 
earliest herbal by Otto Brunfels in 1532. There's a lot of the 16th century herbals. You have a, you really have the rise of the illustrated herbal in the 1530s up to the 1550s and we can see that replicated in Wirth's collections. But he also has 17th century herbals such as John Gerard's herbal, John Parkinson's um, Theatrum Botanicum. So these are really big herbals bringing together all the, the, the knowledge about the, the local um, plants uh, in the 16th, 17th centuries. Worth collection is not solely uh, from a medicinal perspective though he's very much influenced by his sojourn at the University of Leiden and you can see that not just in the Leiden publications and there's a whole tranche of uh, beautifully illustrated floras emanating from Leiden in the later 17th going into the 18th century but also in the Leiden approach to botany because you get in the 17th century a a switch really from botany as a medicinal adjunct to botany as a subject in its own right. So people are writing more about the classification of plants and Worth has loads of books by authors writing about the classification of plants. Now this is pre-Linnaean. He dies in 1733, so it's pre-Linnaean. So it's really interesting to see the various ways people can try to classify plants because you have an avalanche of plants at the time. You have people looking at the plants in their own locale. But then, of course, you have plants from the New World coming in. And we have a wonderful book by a a chap called Francisco Hernandez who went to uh, New New Spain, i.e. Mexico, um, in the 1590s, 1580s, 1590s. And that was printed uh, in the mid-17th century. His findings were printed in the mid-17th century. You can see them really... Um, struggling with the the nomenclature of plants and the classification of plants. And you can see that right across the board in the Worth. The the really one key theme that comes out of Worth's collections is the strong impact of Leiden and more generally the Dutch Republic on botanical exploration in the early modern period. And that's the theme that comes up in other papers as well. In Marsh's library, you can see it in uh, Charles's uh, Charles's paper on um, Trinity in the early 18th century that Leiden is, uh, you know, a kind of um, facilitator for botanical exploration. The first botanical book uh, published in Ireland was in 1726, a hugely influential book by a clergyman. Caleb Threlkeld published the first Irish floor in 1726, the, the Synopsis of Hibernicarum. Uh, it's a small, it's a handbook. Worth didn't actually collect it because one of the things that you see in the Worth Library is that he was interested in display copies. He was interested in the book as material objects. So we have a lot of big folios and quartos that you would have on display in your library and show off to your friends. He didn't, he doesn't seem to have been a, a, a gardener himself. I'd say he was an armchair gardener. So he wasn't interested in something like Threlkel's Synopsis. But Threlkel's Synopsis is a really fascinating book in its own right. Uh, because it's written by this uh, minister, a dissenter minister who comes over from England, from Cumberland in 1713. He uh, sets up really a medical practice. He, he acts as a medical practitioner in Dublin, but he also botanizes and he gets involved with people like uh, Thomas Molyneux in roaming around Dublin and the environs of Dublin, talking about the plant ecology of Dublin. So it's a snapshot, and, and Declan Duke has a wonderful article on this, the snapshot of the plant ecology 
of Dublin in the 1720s. Um, Threlkeld is a very attractive character. I mean, he's obviously somebody who's deeply interested in helping the poor. And you can see that in the reactions to his death in 1728, that he was, you know, commended uh, for his work with the poor and helping the the sick of Dublin. There is a remarkable woman as well uh, in the book, uh, Ellen Hutchins, who is a botanist in West Cork, and that takes the story up to the 18th century as well. Um, indeed, uh, indeed, up to the 19th century. Um, Ellen was um, based in Ballylicky House down in Bantry in West Cork and she composed a list of over a thousand plants for West Cork. She was in communication. Communi- scholarly communication is very important for the spread of botanical knowledge. You can see it in the 16th century. I- I'd be interested in this anyway because I'm interested in scholarly networks. But Ellen was connected with people in Trinity, so James Townsend Mackey, and they were sending not just letters but seeds and plants to each other. She was a very gifted artist and she was also involved in creating uh, paintings and drawings for other people's work. Uh, so Dawson Turner and um, uh, Hooker also in- included uh, images of her work. Um, she died young. I mean, she she was uh, looking after her elderly mother and also her um, brother who was ill as well. Uh, and unfortunately, she died young just before she turned 30. Um, but she produced a, a beautiful body of work and there's part of her herbarium is actually in Trinity. Um, so we can see her dried specimens, her horty sicky. Uh, it's in Trinity. And indeed, Caleb Threlkel's herbarium is in, in Trinity College, Dublin as well. And that's just 1815, so as you say, taking yeah. us into the first yeah. part of the 19th century and yeah. showing. And you really see how I think gardens were evolving in this period as well, that there are there are changes in the way things were being designed and, and what was being done. Yeah, very much so. And we have a whole section on gardens and landscape. Now, you, you can see, obviously, you can see gardens in the the um, third section, which is about paper gardens, i.e. The, the paper about the Worth Library, the collections of marshes, and also the wonderful Fagel collection in Trinity, where you can see a lot about the importance of French and Italian garden design on Dutch gardens, Dutch private gardens, the Buitenplatz and, um, uh, of, uh, uh, that are represented in the, the wonderful Fagel collection. Trinity, of course, has, as you know, a, a great project uh, unlocking the Fagel collection. But you can see that also in private gardens and institutional gardens like Trinity um, and indeed um, in Ellen's Garden down in Bantry Bay, that they're all different types of gardens that are uh, explored in the book. Let's go back to the late 17th century because Patrick Kelly has a wonderful article on the Molyneux brothers and uh, the work of the Dublin Philosophical Society. And, uh, you know, I suppose innovative changes and innovative approaches back then. Yeah, the Dublin Philosophical Society was founded in 1683, the sort of sister society of the Royal Society. And Molyneux and his brother Thomas and his brother William were really the, the at the forefront of the foundation. Uh, William particularly was interested in uh, you know setting up a, a sister society to the Royal Society. So there's a lot of communication there. They don't set up their own journal. They, they publish within the Royal Society and the transactions of the Royal Society. Thomas, like Edward Worth, was educated in, did his medical degree in Leiden. And again, you can see that impact coming out in the the explorations of the Dublin Philosophical Society. And there's a direct link between their botanical uh, explorations, particularly that of Thomas Molyneux and Threlkeld, because Threlkeld includes an appendix in his synopsis of 
uh, notes from Thomas Molyneux about plants that he, they had seen around Dublin. So there's a, a kind of linkage between what's happening in the 17th century and then when Threlkeld comes over in 1713. And we've mentioned Marsh's Library and the Trinity College Dublin Library and again articles showing uh, the botanical and gardening works that you can find in their collections. There's a, there's a good bit of crossover. I mean, what Marsh is, um, is four libraries, four collections coming together compared to the Worth, which is a capsule collection. Um, so you have uh, different uh, collectors' interests coming into play in marshes. But in the main, there's quite a lot of crossover between, you know, there's an interest in herbals, there's an interest in editions of classical herbals and classical sources like Dioscorides. Um, I think marshes, you see, maybe a bit more of a theological bent that they're interested in classification because they're going back to Genesis and the naming of plants in Genesis um, rather than Worth would, would be less interested in it. He would have been, from that perspective, he would be much more interested in um, botany for its own sake rather than as, as a, a, a theological adjunct, really. You also see, I suppose, how exploration is affecting how we understand uh, botany and, and plants because uh, the more they travelled around the world and the, the various trading companies, the more they discovered from uh, places far off around the world. Yeah, I mean, you see that very much in the Worth Library where the, the Dutch East India Company is bringing plants back from South Africa and also from South Asia. And we have, you know, we have a 12 volume set of plants from the Malabar coast. We have two volumes of uh, the plants that were in the Hortus Medicus in Amsterdam. You have two loci in, in the Netherlands in the 17th going into the 18th century. You have the Hortus Medicus in Amsterdam and the Hortus Academicus at Leiden. And the Dutch East India Company is bringing plants to both and they're producing publications of their plants and they are in uh, the Worth Library. They're in uh, some other libraries as well, but the Worth is a, the, the best collection, really. Um, and you can see also, as I mentioned, Francesco Hernandez, the, the Spaniards are going out and exploring the New World and bringing back information. Some of the, the motivation is uh, medicinal. Certainly the Dutch East India Company had a garden in the, the Cape and they tried to, to um, bring plants back from it because they're interested in the medicinal knowledge of the local people, the, the San people. Um, Ditto Hernandez in, in New Spain and Mexico, they were very interested in medicinal uh, applications of plants coming from the New World, bringing them back to, to Old World Europe. So is there that balance between things looking beautiful and things having a practical purpose and that they're interested in the different the different aspects? Yes, def- definitely. And you see that in the work because you have the herbals, as I mentioned, but you also have a large number of these floras. And when I say large, that I'm, I'm thinking about the large, one of the largest books in the library is the Hortus Isotensis, which is an enormous tome. And it's uh, such a beautiful book. I mean, you can find online versions of it and you can also see um, on our online exhibition on botany, you see some images of it. But it is a pure herbal, it's, or a pure flora, I should say. It's really just images of plants. It doesn't go into any medicinal preparation, any medicinal virtue of plants. It's solely focused on the plant as image. And it is just a sumptuous sumptuous book. It is an opportunity with the volume to go back in time and see things that are 
a little bit familiar to us, but also it's a very different kind of world and uh, and, and an exciting world of of kind of I suppose new discoveries and uh, and and you see that excitement in the articles. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see it very much in the authors at the time. That it's just. Um, the, the excitement comes through and uh, particularly in the, the papers of the Dublin Philosophical Society but also in the communications between people like Ellen and Townsend and uh, Mackie. You can see that coming through right again and again. And we owe them a debt? I think so. I think we certainly owe a debt to Worth because he produced a collection that is of immense importance uh, not just nationally but internationally for anybody interested in the history of medicine or science or history of the book. And wonderful articles on Gothic features in 18th century landscapes. Yes, and Sandra Costello's article. And that, that moves the, the focus to what type of um, t- structures you might have in a garden. And she looks at the, the rise of neo-Gothic um, and she uh, produces you know, a really interesting article about the, the influences on neo-Gothic and the type of uh, structures that you would find, uh, say, at Muckross Abbey and uh, Adair Manor and you know, various uh, country piles. So what exactly does the Worth Library do then? The Worth Library is there to facilitate access to the collection and really to broaden recognition of the collection among the general public and the international community. So what we do is we run uh, tours. We have open days usually linked with exhibition openings or with um, something like the Dublin Festival of History. We also run tours throughout the year. We also run an annual lecture series. We do a lot online. All our exhibitions that we've ever done are online off the exhibitions tab of our website. We have publications like Botany and Gardens, but also other publications. We have a MOOC, a massive open online course on the history of the book. So if you go, if you Google Future Learn History of the Book, you'll find a a course on the history of the book that's a, a joint course with Trinity, looking at our collections and Trinity collections. And of course, we also have research fellowship schemes. And I give guest lectures both locally, nationally and internationally. Okay, well, congratulations on the volume and congratulations to Four Courts Press. And I think it is one of those beautifully produced books that would make a wonderful Christmas present. So I hope they've produced enough in stock for uh, uh, people because I think there will be a lot of interest in it. So, Elizabeth Ann, thanks so much. Thank you very much. The book is called Botany and Gardens in Early Modern Ireland, published, as I say, in hardback by Four Courts Press. The editors, Charles Nelson, Emer Lawler and Elizabeth Ann Bourne. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Now, to end the show tonight, we're going to look at the professionalisation and development of nursing and midwifery in the 19th century in Ireland and how it was reflected in the poor law unions of Boris O'Kane and Nina in County Tipperary between 1882 and 1922. And a wonderful new book has just come out by Lisa McGinney. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. And Lisa, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. It's lovely to be here. So can we go back in time Time to the late 19th century then and what we can learn about the professions of nursing and midwifery and how they were changing in this time. Absolutely. Um, I suppose, you, uh, as you mentioned, the time period for my book starts in 1882 and that really for the Nina area is reflective of when the Sisters of Mercy started taking over the nursing. But um, I suppose if you go back earlier, any nursing that was um, done in the workhouse was really done by the inmates in the early period um, so you're talking from the 1840s, and it was not really well regarded. Um, and I was, I got involved in this whole 
area, uh, I suppose, because I was a volunteer tour guide in the workhouse centre in Pratomna. You know, so you're telling the story of the workhouse, you're telling the story of the infirmary. Um, and it was only when I looked a bit deeper, I realised, well, actually, the infirmary of the workhouse was really the precursor to our modern healthcare system. And how did that come about? Um, so when you look at sort of the Medical Charities Act of 1851 and then the, the different reviews of the poor laws from especially 1868, they kind of opened the workhouse infirmary to the general public not just the destitute poor. So all of a sudden you have this, I suppose, a network of infirmaries all around the country. There was 163 of them. Um, and they're open to the public as their main medical centre if you didn't, don't live in a, in a city. Um, obviously, if you live in Dublin or Limerick or Galway or Cork, Belfast, you have hospitals available, but in rural areas, not so much. Because you now have a centre where everyone is going for, well, a majority of people are, are using as their main hospital, then there was a demand for better care. Um, and the Irish Workhouse um, Association was formed in 1896. And one of their big demands was that they'd have qualified staff in the hospitals. So it's really only from that period of time you start seeing qualified nurses working in the work in the infirmaries. But prior to that, you have from 1860, you have the Sisters of Mercy looked to take over the nursing care um, in Limerick Workhouse Infirmary. And it took them a while to get in there. But once they got in, um, they improved things so much that by the end of um, the time of the workhouses, so you're talking by the 1920s, you have 84 of the 163 workhouses have Sisters of Mercy more or less running the infirmaries. But they weren't nurses. Um, and then this became an issue as well. So that whole, yeah, the whole area of how that transition happened, it, it fascinated me because as a nurse myself, we had never learned that history. <laughs> so I, I, I became very interested in that then when I was doing my master's in local history. And tell us about the fever hospitals, because they seem to have played such a, a crucial role whenever there was an outbreak of a disease like measles or typhus or so on. Absolutely. And actually, the fever hospital predates the workhouse infirmary. We have fever hospitals in Ireland, sometimes temporary, um, Come um, from about the 18, um, 1818, from those early cholera outbreaks, um, where they realised they didn't. Uh, the theory of medicine at that time would have been humoral theory, so uh, belief in bad air, bad blood, that kind of thing. Um, germ theory hasn't been developed yet, so the idea of clean water and washing hands and that wasn't known but this idea of bad air was so separating um, the sick from the well uh, whitewashing because there was antiseptic properties in the whitewash um, clearing up pools of stagnant water that was something that boards of health were doing from the 18 around 1818 1816 1818 um, and it sometimes they were burnt down then after their use um, and then under the again under the medical charities act that whole system of fever hospitals was re-evaluated. So most unions would have had a fever hospital. And again, that idea of keeping um, the infectious sick diseases out of even the, out of the workhouse, but out of the ordinary infirmary as well. And, but then there was a problem with the fever hospitals down the line. They were either really full and busy or empty because the nature of um, infectious diseases being cyclical, as we've found in the last number of years, um, and that was an issue in Nina. Definitely, I saw it was quite funny that uh, if if there was a fever and an outbreak, they were getting the, the medical officer who was, he did his own thing. He was brilliant. Um, he was often sending to Dublin to Cork Fever Hospital or to Barrington's in Limerick for extra nurses. 
to help cope. Then there was no accommodation for them. They were being put up in hotels in the town. So all of this had a financial implication for the border guardians who were not happy. The idea of home nursing seems to have uh, been a, a very interesting one as well. And it developed, I think, after 1909 when there was a, um, a new legislation passed. And that was significant as well. Absolutely. So we have, um, I suppose, from the the late 18, about the 1890s, you have um, two homes. They're called homes, St. Patrick's Home, St. Lawrence's Home for Nurses in Dublin, and they were training district nurses. So they were nurses who had midwifery and general nursing, and they did an extra six-month training to be a district nurse, so um, our modern public health nurse, if you will. Um, They had to know how to cycle because they got everywhere by bike. Um, And then district nursing associations started to be formed around the country, often under the auspices of the Women's National Health Association, which was started by Lady Aberdeen um, in 1907. She was the wife of the Viceroy of Ireland um, from 1905 to 1915. And she started this Women's National Health Association with with the whole... um, Her whole angle was to try and improve the general health in Ireland, but particularly around tuberculosis and infant mortality. Um, And so these district nurses, their primary remit had been about educating about um, tuberculosis and also visiting houses where there was uh, patients with tuberculosis to try and improve their outcomes. But prior to that, we also, on top of that district nurse, we have the district midwife. So she existed prior to the district nurse, if you like. So that the, the midwife that went around to people's houses and delivered was was in existence from quite a lot earlier, I suppose, from the beginning of time. But from um, from that mid that late 1800s, we start looking that um, the poor under the poor laws, and uh, they're being pushed that that midwife would be qualified and not just a traditional midwife, someone who's maybe learnt the skills from their mothers or their aunts or their sisters, so someone that was qualified. And that kind of continued then uh, with a, a mother and child welfare scheme that was developed in 1919. How effective right. and how successful was that? Well, the, um, if you look at the, the reports in the papers, they're saying that it was very effective. So the mother and child scheme, I suppose, in some ways we have um, lots of aspects of that still in existence. So everything from um, the, the public health nurse visits after the birth of the baby and all those child health visits that and continue up to the child goes to school. So it was about supporting mothers in their um, care of their children. Um, and it was through home visits at that time. So I suppose now it's more, maybe more clinic visits, but at that time it's home visits and it was teaching mothers about um, infant feeding, dressing them correctly, bathing, you know, hygiene, health, everything, you know, everything to do with childcare. Um, and I suppose any information, especially where it was coming from, maybe um, science, you know, research-based information um, was more than maybe parent, mothers had had before. And it was getting away from the old wives' tales. So one of the stories that I came across, it was more to do with the midwives. But when the district, when the qualified midwives came along, they dispensed with things like alcohol at the, at, in the house when the mother was laboring. So that must have been then quite a common thing that the neighbours would come in and everybody would have a drink while the mother was in labour. Um, so um, that was fr- the, the people weren't that happy about that aspect and that she brought cleanliness as well. Um, so, yes, so this is what the, I suppose, your qualified nurses, um, public health nurses, district nurses, district wives were bringing. They were bringing order, cleanliness, 
scientifically um, proven um, methods, I suppose, of care. You also see, I suppose, during the period that you cover, as we talked, the, the professionalisation of, yeah. of, of, the, of the nurses and the midwives. And, and it is very much, I suppose, changed by 1922 from what it would have been like 40 years earlier. Absolutely. I mean, really, until 1891, um, there isn't a standardised training in Ireland for nurses. So anybody that has received nursing training prior to that, so I suppose our two orders of nuns that were doing nursing, um, and they were known as walking nuns, were the Sisters of Mercy and the Sisters of Charity. So if you think of St. Vincent's Hospital in Dublin, so they were tr- doing a nursing training for their uh, for the nuns themselves. It wasn't wider than that. Actually, um, Florence Nightingale approached the Sisters of Charity in Dublin for training before she went to the Crimea but they refused her because they only trained their own um, sisters so there was a training but it wasn't one that had an examination at the end and was standardised, there was also training in Sir Patrick Dunn's um, in in the Adelaide but until 1890-91 there wasn't a standardised training um, an examination and sort of certification for nurses prior to that there was for midwives a little bit earlier um, so up to that, there wasn't this, yeah, there was certificates, but there wasn't this standardized training where you could get an examination at the end and you knew that everybody got, that got a training got the same type of information and that their standard was the same. So that's actually quite recent, if you think of it. You know, 1891 isn't, isn't awfully that, that long ago. Okay, well, it's a fascinating study. Nursing and Midwifery in the Poor Law Unions of Boris O'Kane and Nina, 1882 to 1922, published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author, Lisa McGinney. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night. <laughs>